Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll talk to Ben Ritz, director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the Progressive Policy Institute. Our subject will be the Fitch Credit Ratings Agency downgrade of the U.S. Treasury securities. And we'll also talk about a new op-ed he co-authored for The Hill titled, One Year After the Chips Act, Congress's Starving Science. Finally, we'll get Ben's take on the president's latest uh, student loan relief plan. Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson joins me for the conversation. Ben Ritz is a familiar voice on Facing the Future. Prior to joining the PPI, Ben was with the uh, Bipartisan Policy Center, where he staffed the Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings. He also worked on uh, federal budget issues at the BPC, uh, including federal debt limit uh, issues. Before joining the BPC, Ben served as Legislative Outreach Director for the Concord Coalition. Ben and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Fitch Ratings announced in on August 1st that it was downgrading the U.S. long-term credit rating from uh, uh, AAA to AA+. And in making that announcement, which I have to say came as a surprise to a lot of people, uh, particularly to the people in the Biden administration, uh, Fitch cited, and I quote, the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, a high and growing general government debt burden, and the erosion of governance relative to AA and AAA-rated peers over the last two decades that has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last-minute resolutions. So um, you wrote in Forbes that the Fitch downgrade should be a wake up call to Washington, even if it's wrong. Um, that's an intriguing that I, I agree. Um, <laughs> but tell us how you reached that conclusion. Sure. So I think there's two perspectives that we've seen in reaction to the Fitch downgrade. On the one hand, we have seen folks in the administration who have said, uh, that it doesn't really make any sense. The United States has never missed a bond payment. And I, I should say, these ratings are meant to reflect the probability that an entity is going to make all of its uh, bond payments on time. And so the United States has never missed a bond payment. The government raised the debt ceiling before uh, possibly missing a bond payment this time. Uh, and a bunch of other economic indicators are positive. The economy is growing. We have low unemployment. Uh, we've actually had better growth than most of our peers. And so nobody really questions the federal government's ability uh, to make any payments uh, on time in the near future. And so, uh, and furthermore, it's no more like, it seems no more likely to default on its debts than it has been at any other point in the last decade when Fitch has said that we're a AAA country. 
So I think there's this, this reasonable argument that this downgrade now doesn't really make sense. On the other hand, uh, folks, particularly on the Republican side, have basically said, we've had this coming. We've not done anything about our fiscal situation uh, that is continuing to deteriorate, and that is going to create more uh, fiscal pressure over the coming decades. And so this is a wake-up call that we need to get our fiscal house in order. And I think the the reality is both sides have have a reasonable point here. We do need to get our fiscal house in order, and there there is a long-term economic risk here and that's true whether or not the Fitch downgrade made sense at this particular time. Steve. Yeah, so to put this into context, I mean, there, there actually are three what are called credit rating agencies. You have the S&P, you have Moody's, and you have Fitch, and they all rate credit like for corporate bonds and for government bonds in this case. And, and as you know, there's our our say viewers as our audience may may recall s p actually wrote down uh the the federal debt from AAA to AA back in 2011 and that was done sort of in the midst of the last big debt ceiling crisis i mean what what's your thought ben on, on just the timing i mean we we resolved the the latest debt crisis in june and then then fitch waited till august to say ah oh, well by the way we're going to downgrade the debt too i mean is there any rationale behind why they did what they did when when they did it? So I, I don't know how long it takes them to kind of go through the process. And so I don't I'm not reading too much into August versus June. But I think it's it's worth noting that the the closest we really came to the the biggest uh bout of debt limit brinkmanship where we I think we came closest to default. Uh, seriously for the first time in our history was 2011. That was when S&P downgraded us. And Fitch said we shouldn't be downgraded at that time. And so I think it's worth asking what has happened over the last decade that is materially worse than it was in 2011. I think this bout of debt limit brinkmanship was bad. I mean, it certainly was close. Uh, to put in perspective, the, the government raised the debt ceiling on June 1st, and there was a time when the, up until a week beforehand, where the Treasury thought that we could potentially default on that day had the debt limit not been raised. So that was a very close brush. Um, but again, we had a close brush in 2011 and we raised it and we had a close brush this time when we raised it. And so I, I think it's it's difficult to look at the last at, at, at an agency that has said, we didn't warrant a downgrade because it happened once but we do because it happened a second time. I, I, I think that it's, I don't think that it's materially different from the last debt limit fight. Uh, on the other hand, I think there is uh, an argument that it, there's more cause for concern based on what hasn't changed in that time. Um, the fiscal trajectory was unsustainable back in 2011. Everybody knew this. Uh, and there was a lot of conversation about how we might reduce the deficit. There was the Bull Simpson Fiscal Commission um, there were the Obama-Boehner discussions. Uh, there was the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, and none of them yielded any significant uh, long-term budget reforms. And just you know, recently we had uh, President Biden in the State of the Union say we shouldn't do anything uh, to touch Social Security and Medicare benefits. Republicans have said they don't want to raise any taxes. Biden says he doesn't want to raise taxes on more than ninety-five percent of the population. So. I think there is a there is a, a real cause for concern from what hasn't changed over that time. But again, you know, what is the what is the action forcing event now that makes us say, you know, 
now the U.S. has gone from AAA to AA plus, it's not obvious to me that there's anything particular about right now that makes sense. Yeah, yeah so there's. The, go go ahead, go ahead, Steve. Follow so up. so should we uh, expect the next debt ceiling crisis that uh, Moody's will be the third shoe to drop? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I actually had a conversation with the, the Moody's folks uh, a couple months ago. And my sense is that if, I mean, I look, I think if we ever breach the debt limit, I think there would be a downgrade. And I don't think we would ever get our AAA credit rating back again after that, so long as um, the debt limit uh, the debt limit still existed. Um, but there their perspective is that right now the debt limit just poses a potential risk of of default um but it hasn't actually resulted in in us missing a payment and because it's always been raised uh we are going to continue to assume that it's going to be raised until that changes uh i think that makes sense so i would say is now I, that's not to say that we're not at risk of a downgrade i think that they're they're very concerned about um they're very concerned about uh, the long-term fiscal situation and that deterioration. And you know, the closer we get to to a default, I think there's more risk. But I think that as long as 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 long as we continue to have the same fiscal the same approach to the debt limit as we've had these times, which importantly includes raising it on time, uh, I wouldn't say that just because it happens again, we're likely to see Moody's do a downgrade. But also, I, I should also just caveat. I know I don't speak for them. This is just my my recollection from that conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, the, that the phrase erosion in uh, what did they say? Erosion of governance um, seemed to. They did reference the debt ceiling. They they seem to sort of paint a pretty broad picture, though, and we're probably going to get another example of that in the uh, at the end of the year, fiscal year in September, if there's a shutdown. Now, of course, that doesn't have anything to do with the government bond ratings per se, but it, it can if you're thinking of government uh, erosion of governmental uh, functions as uh, part of it. They even one of the spokesmen or the head of um, the ratings agencies even threw in like you know, January 6th is just sort of a catch-all of uh, erosion. But it, to Steve's point, it's it's well, well, you sort of both made the point. It's kind of like, well, why not? We 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 knew all this. <laughs> We've known it for a long time. What are the, I mean, potential consequences other than making a statement from a major ratings agency? Are there any... Um, potential or observed consequences from this downgrade? I don't think there are potential. So I think the important thing to realize about the ratings agencies is they don't have any power in and of themselves. What they are are a signal to investors who really do have the power to determine uh, in the market what what rate at which they're willing to lend money to the federal government. And so if they are, if they are concerned that we are not going to pay back our debts on time, uh, then they will demand a higher interest rate to compensate for that risk. And that leads to higher interest costs for the federal government. And that's money that doesn't go to other public needs. And so you know, the downgrade itself doesn't cause, uh, doesn't necessarily cause uh, that to happen because in with most of the entities being rated by these agencies, uh, 
investors aren't exactly sure uh, what the value, what the fundamentals are and what the, the probability of repayment is. This is sort of like a shorthand for them. Whereas everybody has an opinion about the treasury market. Uh, everybody who is investing has a sense about about what the the value of a treasury is. And so I think that the rating has less significance for the US government than for lesser known entities. Um, but at the same time, if it is signaling a broader loss of investor confidence or or presaging it, I think that does have the potential to lead to higher borrowing costs. And to to be clear, it's still pretty high. I mean, it was downgraded from AAA to AA plus. It's it's not like they said these are junk bonds or something. I, I mean, it's it's um, not not enough. It wouldn't appear to have a a big uh, market impact. We are seeing higher interest rates. They've actually been going up quite a bit, but that seems to have more to do with what's going on in the economy. Than, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, interest rate, the, the actual borrowing cost to the government is set by a combination of the what the Fed sets benchmark rates at and how investors respond to those changes. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a mix of factors. And so interest rates can go up despite the fact that uh, that investor views of the U.S. haven't changed. Uh, alternatively, you could you could see a scenario where investors have become, I mean, this is what a lot of people theorize happened after 2011, was people, uh, people were concerned about the U.S. long-term fiscal situation, but at the same time they thought, uh, and then they were concerned about the prospect of, of default having just narrowly been avoided, um, but they were so concerned about what it would mean for the global economy that they did what they normally do, which is go to treasure buy treasuries as a as sort of the safe haven asset. And so fear about the government's ability to repay its debts, or rather not the government's ability, but the government's willingness to repay its debts, uh, actually led interest rates to fall. And so, uh, you know, this is a complicated system with a lot of different factors, but overall, loss of confidence in the government is all else being equal, going to lead to higher borrowing costs. Steve? Yeah, so I guess that raises the question, what, what if anything, should we do about this? I mean, do we just keep going through, you know, one debt ceiling standoff after another? I mean, there have been some suggestions, I think you mentioned in your op-ed, you know, maybe we should just get rid of the debt limit. Uh, that's certainly one option. The other option, of course, is let's let's try to get serious about addressing the debt the debt as an issue, so that we don't have this problem over and over. Um, I, I recall Speaker McCarthy right after they did the debt limit bill in June had suggested maybe he would propose a commission to look at you know dealing with the budget. Um, what, what's what's sort of your thoughts relative to? Just get rid of the debt. Get rid of the debt limit versus okay. Let's get serious. Let's do a commission. Let's do budget reform. What's what's your thought there? I think the truth is we sh we should do both. Um, on the debt limit front, the the debt limit uh, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as a mechanism. It is it is set at it doesn't prevent the accumulation. Uh, it doesn't prevent the policies that lead to the accumulation of debt. It simply limits the treasury's ability to repay them. And it is set at a fixed nominal amount, which means that if our economy were to double in size uh, and the debt were to actually be falling as a percentage of of, of uh, economic output, which uh, is the standard for fiscal sustainability, uh, you would still have to raise the debt limit because of inflation, population growth, and other factors. 
So it doesn't really make sense as a mechanism. And on top of that, even though it doesn't affect our ability to repay our debts, it does cause uh, it does give reason for investors to question our willingness so long as we have this debt limit brinkmanship. So it doesn't really serve a purpose and it it poses a big threat. And so I think there is a strong argument for either uh, repealing the debt limit or probably more likely uh, reforming it so that it is less of an economic threat along the lines of the uh, Responsible Budget Act that has been proposed by uh, Congressman Scott Peters and uh, in the previous Congress uh, budget chairman, Jody Arrington was the Republican co-sponsor. And so I think that there is a strong argument for that. On the, on the same time, uh, you can't just get rid of the debt limit and say, all right, problem solved. We can just move on. Because again, uh, even though that removes the question about our willingness to repay our debts, uh, and there isn't a big question about our ability in the near term, there is a question over the long term when we have rising debts, uh, how we're going to be able to pay them. I mean, right now, uh, interest payments are on track to, under current projections by the Congressional Budget Office, uh, they're on track to exceed defense spending within the next decade, and they'll surpass Social Security as the single largest line item in the federal budget by 2050. Uh, that's not sustainable, and I think that we have to address it in some form, whether that's a commission. I think a commission is probably um, the starting point just to get the conversation going because of how uh, how little converse, serious conversation we've been having about these issues in, in recent years. But I think I think it's not either or. I think we have to do both. So what what are the prospects for a commission? I guess the last time, you know, you had Simpson Bowles under President Obama back in 2010, and they were never able to get a vote on that and, you know, have even Congress consider it seriously. What's, I mean, what are the prospects this time of the next commission? Is that going to have the same fate as as Simpson Bowles, or are they going to they going to finally get serious? I mean, I think the first question is, what is the prospect we actually have a commission in the first place? Um, <laughs> it's worth noting that the Biden administration, uh, as recently as February, uh, was calling a commission uh, death panels, and so I think uh, you know, just getting a commission. What are the prospects? I think they're reasonably good, but you know, probably more on the order of like. 55% probability rather than 90% probability. I mean, just because Kevin McCarthy says he wants something doesn't mean it's going to happen. And there needs to be bipartisan buy-in for a commission to work. Uh, and furthermore, uh, there has to be, it has to be able to put everything on the table. If McCarthy says, I want a commission that's just going to look at spending changes, it's not a serious commission. There's not a chance that it's going to produce anything useful. Uh even if we had a worthwhile commission along the lines of Bull Simpson that produced serious proposals, I'm not sure what the odds are that it would actually go anywhere. Uh, I think that when Simpson Bulls happened uh, 13 years ago now, uh, I think there was a broader bipartisan consensus that we needed to do something and that everything needed to be on the table. And I think if anything, we've gone in the opposite direction um, with Democrats getting more resistant or I would say not more resistant, but um, less less supportive of tax increases that they once championed. Uh, and Republicans are getting opposed, thanks, I think, in large part to the leadership from Donald Trump. They used to support entitlement reform, and now they neither want tax increases nor benefit cuts for a lot of them. And so 
I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold my breath that a commission actually fixes the problem anytime soon. Okay. So a commission is one of the solutions, but don't count on it. <laughs> It'd be good if they did it. Um, all right. So you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about Fitch's downgrade of U.S. credit rating. Uh, we'll be right back after these short messages when we'll turn our attention to the subject of federal investments. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute. And in this segment, I want to turn the uh, discussion to federal investments. Uh, ben, you've been quite prolific with op-eds recently. So <laughs> we were talking about your op-ed uh, about the Fitch downgrade. Uh, you also wrote an op-ed co-authored with one of your colleagues, at uh, PPI about um, federal investments. And um, uh, you, title, you, you said in that uh, op-ed that for the United States to continue to be a global leader in science, it must recognize that it is fiscally and scientifically irresponsible to cut research and development investments as a strategy to close the deficits. Um, kind of uh, unpack that a little bit. Uh, where, where are you going with that? Sure. So federal investment in scientific research is really one of the, the building blocks for, for vibrant economic growth. Um, when the federal government invests in research, uh, generally it's basic research, and that is research that's not done by the private sector because it uh, these are projects that don't have a clear commercial application, but they unlock uh, the ability for, and they lay the building blocks for the private sector to build upon and turn into commercially viable uh, technologies. And so if you look at uh, the space program uh, and the number of scientific achievements that have spun off of that, um, the internet was be was begun by, uh, was built on top of federally financed research, uh, GPS. There are, there are no shortage of uh, technologies that that really can point to federal investment as as the the seed that that led to their growth and so when our government reduces spending on uh on reduces investments on these uh these projects that could slow uh technological and thus economic growth in the future not only do we think it's it's scientifically irresponsible and bad for growth to cut those investments but it also doesn't make sense from a fiscal perspective Spending on R&D is just a very small part of the budget. It's about 3% of the federal budget. Um, federal investment in R&D is uh, less or about 1% of uh, gross domestic product, or less than 1% of gross domestic product. And so it's a very tiny part of the budget, and it's a declining share of the budget. And, and so when we have deficits that are roughly 6% of GDP and growing, uh, you know, there's no amount of cut. You could completely wipe it out. Um, and you, you wouldn't make a meaningful difference in the long-term uh, debt trajectory, but you would uh, significantly reduce future economic growth, and that's going to lead to less tax revenue, and that would actually make our debts even harder to sustain. And so 
uh, I think it's just very wrongheaded to be to be trying. Well, to you know, a couple of years ago, when actually when you were working at the Concord Coalition, we we launched our project on fiscally responsible economic growth, and I think uh, you worked on a chart uh, that was that we still use showing declining investment uh, from you know past years, and it's really striking if you go back, like uh, you know to back to the 1960s even you know we had a huge share of the budget uh, almost a third of the budget was categorized as investment and and uh you know about six and a half percent of gdp so those numbers have been cut in half over the intervening decades so there's been a, this long slow decline in um federal budget investments and and the flip side is there's been a huge increase in the amount of the budget that goes to transfer payments, which are simply payments to, to individuals, uh, which is now around close to 70 percent of the budget. If you go back to the 60s, it was about 30 percent of the budget. So, you know, there's really been a shift in priorities and it does have implications for uh, for the future. Steve, you want to jump in here? Yeah. So, so Ben, you know, you, you sort of referenced the fact that when we talk about re uh, research and development, there's sort of different categories. There's what's, what's referred to as basic research, applied research, and uh, then there's the, the, the development part where once you have the research, you then try to turn it into some sort of usable prod product. Now, obviously, the private sector spends money on research and development as well. We, In fact, we have what's called the R&D tax credit, it's actually several credits that are designed to incentivize investment in the private sector. Um, and, and I think the numbers roughly that, that the private sector spends about 300 billion in, in R&D and the federal government spends about 100 billion. So, you know, private sector is doing a lot. But when you go back to those categories of basic applied and, and, and development, I, I think you, you were making the point that the, the private sector has plenty of incentive to do development. Once they have an idea for a product, they want to develop the product and produce it and make money by selling it. Whereas the the sort of the beginning end of that process, the basic research, which is more general scientific knowledge, it's hard to market that. It's hard to sell that. And there are what, what economists call externalities, where you, you know, you, you the society derives the benefit of spending the money and the, the person who spends the money doesn't necessarily get the benefit directly, that it's more diffuse. I mean, as a way of prioritizing you know, I, I've not looked at the split within the federal government, but, you know, if, if we're searching for dollars, if the highest sort of payoff and the sort of the comparative advantage of federal spending is at the basic research level, you know, maybe a, a, as a sort of a reform, maybe we should focus more of the R&D dollars that the federal government spends on the basic side and less on the applied and the uh, and the development side. What what are your thoughts about sort of the mix of, of R&D spending? Yeah, so I, I think the line between basic and applied can be blurry. Um, but I also think that it's worth noting that uh, the, the, the breakdown of, of research versus development uh, in the federal government is actually a, a relatively clean line where non-defense R&D spending is overwhelmingly basic and applied research, uh, over, over 85%. Um, there's there's a small amount that's development. Uh, it's on the defense side, which is about almost half of federal R&D spending, where 
almost 80% of it is development uh, for weapon systems and uh, those sorts of technologies. Um, and a very small percentage of that is, is basic and applied research. Now, some of that, um, you know, that's done through DARPA and, uh, you know, again, things like GPS uh, originated from that. So, so basic uh, and applied defense research also has an important role. But I think that to the extent we're, we're looking at, uh, at the non-defense side, uh, it, it really is mostly re- research and less development. And then on the defense side, you know, you're you're going to have trouble getting the, the the private sector to find the same use for a lot of those um, defense development uh, purposes without the government, because you know, obviously most private businesses don't have their own private army. And so uh, I think I think you know, I'm all for increasing the basic share. Um, and I think that is a higher priority, but I don't know that there is a lot of of rebalancing as so to the extent that you're I don't I don't think that it's um it's quite so fungible. You know, um you, you kind of make the point that the the Congress is is falling short here on on research center despite having plunged in with the uh, the Chips Act and and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which had a whole lot of tax credits for, um, I don't know what you'd call those R&D, but I guess it was to develop uh, um, environmentally or, you know, clean automobiles and, uh, and uh, you know, electric vehicles and charging stations, that sort of thing. So, but, uh, so on the one hand, it seems like the federal government is, is, has a big, investment agenda, but um, maybe some of that money is not being appropriated? So I, I think I think the federal government uh, under the Biden administration uh, really did put a strong foot forward in reversing this, this decline in investment. And I think a year ago, uh, it looked very promising from this perspective. Uh, but I think if you look at the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, most of more of those credits are for procuring green technologies and adopting them rather than researching and developing them. There's there's some good stuff in there on that too, um, but it's it's more on the adoption side. And then on the Chips and Sciences Act, uh, Chips and Sciences Act was supposed to herald uh, two uh, about two hundred billion dollars of new R and D spending above uh, baseline projections over the coming decade. That was going to be a huge huge. Uh, uh, reversal of of the the trend of starving R&D. But then when it came time to actually appropriate the money, uh Congress didn't do it and it fell far short of the reaching those those objectives. And if you look at the appropriations bills that are being considered for next year, it's even worse. Even the Senate which has appropriated at a level uh slightly higher than the levels agreed to in the debt limit deal their appropriations bills would cut R&D spending relative to last year's levels, which themselves failed to meet the targets set by the Chips and Science Act. So I think there's been a lot more good talk on R&D than there has been good action, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and you underscore uh, one other point here, which is that it's always the the easiest low-hanging fruit in the budget is always non-defense discretionary spending, and that's where we get our uh, investment spending from. Um, so 
that that continues. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here, a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute about federal investments. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, and in this segment, I, uh, I want to bring up uh, President, uh, President Biden's new student loan forgiveness plan. But uh, just to wrap up on the investment section that we were talking about in the last segment, uh, section, Steve, I think you had a, a point to make. Yeah. So when you look at R&D expenditures, a large portion of it goes to the wages and salaries of the engineers and the scientists who are doing the research. And you know, obviously, immigration is a very important issue in terms of economic growth and, and labor force. But when you look at all of the colleges and universities that are basically training uh, foreign students here for, you know, they're getting their degrees and PhDs in, in math and science and engineering, and in many cases, those students uh, go back to their home country. I mean, you could argue that, you know, given the critical role of R&D, immigration has a role of playing. If, if, if all of those, you know, PhD students were to stay and do their research here, we might benefit more than if they go back to their home country. I mean, what, what's sort of the, the R&D nexus of uh, immigration? Yeah, when the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act passed, one of the big concerns businesses immediately raised is that we don't we might not have the workers needed to complete these investments. Um, it's particularly problem. I mean, there's already an issue with us not having enough high skilled workers in these fields. That that's been true for years. But now it's especially true with the tight labor market. Um, and so it really doesn't make sense to be bringing in the best and the brightest from across the world, uh, educating them, giving them the skills, and then sending them home. You know our one of our biggest economic advantages is being the magnet for the best talent in the world. And then to to kick them out right when they're, you know, hitting their apex of, of value uh, just makes no sense. And so clearly uh, immigration reform is is needed to to really unlock the full potential of these investments. Yeah, in that sense, it would be a twofer. We expand the workforce and uh it's a highly productive workforce at that in an area that we really need so that uh, we, certainly makes a lot of sense are, we generally say there's no there are no magic bullets uh in fiscal policy you know if you want to if you want to reduce the debt you you either have to raise taxes or cut spending there's there's no real other alternatives there's always an asterisk there with immigration reform it's it is it's the closest thing we have to to a free lunch of policy options. You're certainly not going to solve the problem with immigration reform only, um, but it really is one of the one of the best tools we have available. Um, okay, another form of investment is education, and a lot of people spend a lot of money on debt, um, going into debt for their higher uh, learning, and uh, so there's been quite a bit of um, froth, shall we say, in uh, in uh, the subject of student loans with the Biden administration promising student loan forgiveness and then the Supreme Court saying no, and then the Biden administration is coming back with uh, other proposals. So as I understand it, the student loan moratorium is going to be 
ending soon. And uh, some people are concerned whether that will have an effect uh, on the economy. Uh, and I'm sure that will bring some political pressures. And then the other part of it is that when the president's full proposal was struck down by the Supreme Court, there was another part of it that uh, uh, I guess he has revised and, and gone forward with, which is part of a, an income-driven uh, student loan portion of the uh, the program. So things are a little bit confused right now, I'd, I'd think. But Ben, where where do you uh, how, where do you see the student loan uh, issue right now? So I would say two things. So to your first point about how the resumption of payments is going to impact the economy, uh, I've seen a lot of reporting in the media that that has suggested it's it's a problem and it's going to dra- be a drag. Uh, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. The fact is, uh, right now we have we've, we've been struggling to tamp down on inflation, uh, and uh, the Biden administration itself admitted when it first said that it was going to start winding down student debt relief that or uh, the moratorium that resuming payments was going to be counterinflationary. So I think that the economic effect is actually going to be good. It is going to uh, help tamp down on inflation. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's positive because that's, that's been the central economic challenge of the last two years. Um, as far as the, the future of student debt repayment, um, we, we have seen, you know, the Supreme Court struck down Biden's attempt to do, uh, one-time unilateral debt cancellation. Uh, and Biden has said that he is going to pursue that a similar effort through different legal authority, but I think everybody knows that that's, you know, almost everybody knows that's got about as much chance of succeeding as the first one. There's the Supreme Court's issue was not that the wrong statute was invoked; it's that you can't, the president cannot unilaterally spend four hundred billion dollars without explicit authorization from Congress, and he did not have that. Um, on the flip side, though, Congress has given the president broad flexibility to set the terms of repayment programs. And uh, one of those is through income-driven repayment programs. These are programs that um, that require borrowers to repay a certain amount of, uh, uh, to make payments equal to a certain percentage of their salary each month. And after a certain number of months of payments, if there's still outstanding debt, that debt is forgiven. Um, this is conceptually a good thing because it means that uh, that the, the benefits of student debt cancellation are targeted towards people who are actually in need, whose debts greatly exceed their ability to repay them, um, people who have the debt of a college degree without the income benefits. Um, Biden's version of income-driven repayment is probably a little too generous on that front. Um, it would It would actually... Uh, provide significant loan relief for the median uh, college graduate, even though that person is going to have a higher de- a higher income than the average American. And so uh, I think there are a lot of questionable incentives there and problems. Um, but I think that that that's likely to stand at least from the the legal front. Steve, yeah. So, but with regard to the income driven repayment. Uh, I mean, they had proposed a regulation uh, back, I think, in January that was sort of outlining what the conditions of the proposal were. And and I seem to recall, and, and maybe I, I got this wrong, but I seem to recall that one of the provisions was that, you know, you have to pay back your loan as a percentage of your income over a, a period of time. 
But the question was, what is, what do they count as a payment? In other words, did you have to actually make the full, you know, monthly payment every month to count toward credit to having your loan forgiven at the end? Or could you make a partial payment? And I seem to recall there was some some confusion as to whether individuals who made less than the full payment, that that would also count as a payment. And therefore, you could, in fact, make partial payments uh, throughout the period and and still have your loan forgiven. I mean, did I did I miss something there? Or do you recall seeing something like that? Uh, I don't recall that. That would be pretty problematic if it were true. Um, I, I do. I think. I think the bigger question. I mean, I mean, if that's if that's the case, then that's obviously very problematic. Um, but the but I don't. I don't personally recall that. Um, what I do know is an issue is. Uh, if your income is low enough that you have a zero dollar payment, does does that count as it? You know, if you have a year where your income is low enough that you owe nothing under the the formula, do you still get credit for a year of payments? That I remember being an issue, right. um, but but um, I'm not sure about the situation you're raising. Yeah, and I guess there also was an issue of because we were in the repayment pause. Uh, are you there? There are various programs that allow you to defer payments for a certain period of time. And the question is, does the repayment pause that we've just had, or does these deferral programs where you're deferring payments, do those months also count toward the months of of repayment? So, in fact, you could have a person who was in a period of deferred payment; those months would count as payments <laughs> toward the total to have the loan forgiven. So, I mean, there's a lot of complications there and a lot of different versions of these programs that could potentially interact, um, which, you know, makes it, in my view, more, more problematic. I mean, even, even putting aside those questions, uh, I think, I, I think that, that the, the, the way that the, the president's IDR plan has been constructed, uh, would be pretty problematic in terms of, Incent actually incentivizing people to max out their debt because of how how it would be forgiven. I mean, if you if you we did an analysis when we put a comment in um, during the, the the request for comment period um, that showed the vast majority of of college attendees would would get some cancellation under this. So you're actually better off paying you know taking on debt to pay for college than uh, than than paying in cash, and so that that creates problematic incentives by discouraging savings and encouraging overconsumption uh and and you know discouraging students from being price conscious uh and actually if you if you look at a lot of the folks who who attend college and not complete it a lot of them would basically not be on the hook for any of the cost at all i mean we certainly want folks who who go to college and don't get the benefit of the degree to not be Significantly burdened by student debt cancellation uh, by by student debt, um, and there is space for some cancellation there. But having the federal government bear almost the entirety of the cost um, does present some moral hazard problems, and that's that's true whether or not the government is is you know regardless of what it's technically counting as a payment or not. Just even even taking the structure on its face, there are problems. Yeah, I mean, there's also some evidence that uh, the more you subsidize. The student loans, the the more the colleges raise tuition, and those they essentially they capture part of the subsidies by increasing tuition, which simply raises the cost and makes it even more expensive. Yeah, the Federal Reserve did a study on this a few years ago, and I think it's actually most of the money 
go is captured uh, and goes to higher costs or higher tuition. And so, you know, we're it's really creating an open ended subsidy that's that's feeding the problem and actually going to make college more expensive in the the future. And so paradoxically, uh, you know, in this attempt to this supposed attempt to solve the problem, we're actually making it worse. It's pretty problematic. Um, we only have uh, a few seconds left. Ben, is there going to be a shutdown at the end of the fiscal year? I think it's less likely than the media is making it sound, but I think it is definitely non-zero. I wouldn't be surprised if it happened, and I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen. Well, that's uh, that's a good, solid uh, answer. <laughs> <laughs> He's not surprised. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think that that's uh, that's that's the right answer too. Who knows? Uh, who knows? But there's a, a increasing chance of it, but they sometimes manage to avoid it with last minute deals. So we'll have to wait and see. That's a subject for another month. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'd like to thank our guest, Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute for all of his insights today. And thanks to Steve for joining me. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.